Molweni, San Bonani. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever time you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to the Talking Tech for Good podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship in collaboration with Capacitate. We're passionate about helping you understand the possibilities of tech in social impact organizations. Never have we had to adapt so quickly, and I know this can be very overwhelming. We're here to have conversations, answer some pertinent questions, and hopefully we can all move towards harnessing the power of tech for a better world. Welcome to another episode of Talking Tech for Good with myself, Jason Bygate, and my co-host, Luvoyo Maseko. This is the second episode in a pilot series we're doing on how technology can be used for good, specifically in social benefit organizations. Jason and I have years of experience working in the space and in my case, specifically in youth development. And we saw a need to create conversations and help to create resources to help organizations adapt and transform in the ever-growing digital landscape we find ourselves in. The reality of tech and migration can be a scary one for organizations. And in episode one of the podcast, we explored the concept of digital migration and e-learning. If you missed that episode, do take a listen. Today, we're going to delve a little bit deeper into how to identify the right e-learning platform for your organization. How do you make sure that you're picking the right solution? How do you go about making those decisions? And what are some of the do's and don'ts from people who have walked this road already? Thanks, Lavoya. Something that excites me about the guests that we're getting on this podcast is that they're knowledgeable, have first-hand experience, and are willing to share their wisdom and experiences with us and our listeners. What are some of the challenges that you've seen organizations dealing with that are engaged in the whole e-learning platform and digital transformation idea? You know, Jason, maybe if I just take a step back there and maybe directly talk to our audience, Jason and I obviously do some planning before this. This isn't all just off the hip. Um, and in thinking through one this question, I was a little bit stumped. And the reason for that is because we have an audience, all of whom have different needs and all of whom are looking to take out something specific from this conversation and discussion. So how do you create a sort of discussion that's both generic and contextual enough to make sense? And I think for me, the easiest way to think about it is to break everything down into two parts. So there's back end and there's front end, right? And if you, if you follow me on that sort of trail of thinking, on the front end, particularly within this African context, one can't look outside of the issue of data and connectivity. I'm assuming that a lot of the people listening in operate in situations and environments where data is an issue. So one needs to think about always going for a platform that is as data light and user friendly as possible and to understand which devices the platform will be compatible with. Um, from the back end, again, just following my framing of the front end and the back end, one also needs to think about the content. Do you go with a platform that has content already on it that can meet your objectives in a similar way? Or do you go for a platform that, that is somewhat bare and that allows you to create and implement your own sort of content? Uh, lastly, I think one of the biggest issues revolve around people not being fully aware of the different elements that go into this process. There are so many different things to consider. And the team at Silt, uh, I would advise you all to just have another listen to the podcast last week with Sakena and, and, and go to their website so you can get a little bit more information at this. They break it down in four ways. So the things you need to consider are course design, 
content creation, student engagement, and assessing learning. So some organizations may place too much emphasis on the content creation and not on the, the way in which uh, learners are going to be assessed or in the student engagement, or in creating a really cool design in, in terms of the course, but fall short on the content. So I think we, it needs, all organizations need to be aware of the different elements that are mutually reinforcing across this whole process. And, and, uh, and Jason, right back at you, from a bird's eye point of view, what are some of the things that, that you've experienced, or what are some of the things you've seen that organizations are struggling with? Thanks, Saboya. Yeah, as the, the tech geek in me certainly likes the analogy of the front end and the back end. Um, there's a, a number of different components to approaching this journey. Um, certainly the experience of the users on the front end, the ability to manage and, and deploy content and keep a view of how it's being used. Um, and certainly the cost factor is, is really a considerable one within our South African context. Um, I also like the idea of um, taking a measured approach. Um, as we discussed in the first episode, the idea that uh, if you build it, they will come is, is certainly a flawed one. And it's one that you need to consider when approaching this journey. Uh, COVID has accelerated the migration to online learning platforms for many organizations. And the challenge is really knowing what options there are, what's most suitable for our needs and how are we going to implement them? Most organizations have got really limited experience when it comes to technology, and they're often under pressure to make a decision with those limited resources that you were talking about, Luvoya. So I think it's, it's really about taking a measured approach, building out a foundation and a strategy that will guide you in the journey and selecting the most appropriate solutions based on the users that you have and the context in which you're working. Thanks for that, Jason. I always enjoy seeing your nerdy side come out. And uh, there are a number of e-learning platforms available, and I'm sure that there are many listeners who have engaged with some of these already. So what are your options? Well, there are learner management systems like Moodle and Google, which outside of being really fun words to say, are learner management systems that allow you to create the content you'd like to. And then there's also the option of a system plugin, on a content management system, for example, WordPress or Drupal. And then there are other platforms like Udemy, Skillshare, edX and Coursera, where the content is already developed by someone else. I guess one of the most important things to understand is what you're hoping to achieve with your e-learning strategy and then deciding from there which platform works best for you. I think you're really getting to the crux of things there, Lavoya. Um, aside from enjoying you say Moodle and Google. I think that really the, the key is to be strategic about the process and to look at what you actually need. Is it something that's off the shelf or do you need something that's custom built or perhaps a combination of the two? And most importantly, what are the cost implications? How do you ensure that you don't just create something in the hopes that if we build it, they will use it, but rather being clear about how you're planning on getting people to actually use the tools that you have in place and to learn using the systems that you have deployed. All great questions, Jason, and something that we'll be discussing further with our guests coming up. Today, we're so excited to have Simone Pinkey and Regan Jules McKay joining us for a conversation about e-learning platforms. Both of our guests have been working in the trenches, so to speak, 
and have some really valuable insights and wisdom to share with us. Unlike your hosts, they have a significant amount of knowledge that they're willing to share. <laughs> a lot more, at least, appropriate knowledge, Jason. Simone <laughs> wears a number of hats and is currently working on a few different projects within the DG Murray Trust, one of these being Jobstarter. Jobstarter is a team of young, vibrant individuals who are inspired by South Africa's potential. The team works to inform the youth through learning modules, work readiness assessments, and connecting talent and potential employers, free of charge. Regan is a consultant at Necro and has a number of years experience working in the social development sector in project management, research, monitoring and evaluation, media and marketing, and program design and development. Nicro is a national NGO that aims to build safer communities by seeking to address the impact of crime and violence on victims, families, friends and others through various community-based interventions. Welcome to you both and thank you so much for joining us. You've both been involved in your respective organizations in the digital space. And I would love it if you could share with us what that journey has entailed and how e-learning has become a significant part of your offering. Regan, let's start with you. So I think everything kind of gained momentum during COVID when there was so much pressure for organizations to migrate online and look at how they could take their face-to-face -face services digital. So that put a lot of pressure on the various organizations that I'm working with to look at online platforms such as learning management systems and to start the process of taking their traditional face-to-face -face program offerings and convert that to a different format where people could complete their program requirements online. So it's been a very interesting journey, challenging, because for many of these organizations, this is a completely new space and internal to their organization, they don't necessarily have the technical knowledge or experience to manage those processes. So that's where someone like myself was brought in to assist with those processes. And um, I have worked on digital platforms before, so fortunately I was able to assist Necro in this regard. Thanks, Regan. Um, and, and what about you, Simone? Great, thanks. Um, so Jobstarter for young people is positioned as a, as a digital career coach um, for those looking to connect with opportunities. Uh, we've always been an exclusively digital offering, uh, but in the last year or so, the e-learning component has become a much more stronger focus for us. Um, and so we now have this expanding repository of online learning that prepares young people for the world of work, but that also helps to flag competencies uh, to prospective employers. And for us, as the e-learning component became a stronger focus, uh, we realized that outsourcing the, the development and hosting of the e-learning um, didn't really make sense for us. It, it, it didn't offer us the kind of flexibility and control that uh, we wanted, and it, it didn't appear a very scalable solution. Uh, so we started looking at different software options uh, like Moodle, Talent LMS, Edumi were, were some of the ones we looked at. Um, but we really wanted to reuse as much of our existing system as possible. Uh, while at the same time creating the internal capacity to, to build e-learning modules ourselves. Um, and so based on kind of where we're at uh, at the moment, uh, we've gone for quite a, quite a simple form builder. Um, the pricing structure and the integration options for us were really made sense. They were highly competitive. 
Um, and I think from our experience, we found that form builders and survey tools can be great alternatives to more traditional LMS options. Um, but obviously, yeah, that depends on how, how you plan on delivering your content, um, as well as kind of how much interaction you're wanting to have with individuals who, who partake in, in the e-learning. Thanks, Simone. I think in, in listening to what the two of you have said and um, really thinking about different organizations and the sorts of needs that they have, I think there are a lot of similarities, um, even in the beneficiaries that are being served. But there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all approach to e-learning and platform selection in particular. Uh, Regan, I know that you've done some extensive work before in deciding um, how to go forward with a an e-learning solution. So when you are looking at those solutions for Nicro, perhaps you could share a bit more about how you went about that process in selecting potential options and then making the choice that best fitted the organization itself. So I first started with a landscaping exploration as to what was out there, both locally and overseas. And there are a lot of learning management systems available at different pricing categories. Obviously, the more affordable ones have less, less functionality. Necro's requirements are quite robust in that they refer, they work with people referred by court. So there's legal processes underway and there has to be quite rigorous record keeping about has a person completed their program? Are they compliant with their sentence? We need to show evidence that there's been some form of behavior change. At the same time, we needed to make a platform accessible to people who, in the most part, the majority of Necro's clients are unemployed. They don't necessarily have high digital literacy skills and they don't have access to data or very much data. So we had to balance a lot of considerations when choosing the final platform. In the end, we went with Joomla LMS in terms of affordability and functionality. We felt it was our best bet. They were cheaper systems, but they had less robust reporting, less robust um, group management because we have to secure people's privacy. So we can't have staff at one office being able to see the individual's details of people at other offices. We had to work with restricted groups and have different levels of permission, different access levels within the staff. So Juma LMS worked best for us in terms of affordability plus um, giving us the functionality we needed. But it was very difficult to go through all of the options available because there are just so many LMSs out there. But in the end, we were guided primarily by budget and by our operational requirements in terms of privacy, controlling groups, reporting and data management. And Simone, maybe if I can ask you here, perhaps the same question. What have some of the challenges that you've experienced in choosing the right platform? And how did you go about right, selecting the right one for you? Yeah, I think for us, the, the main challenge was determining whether to build a new system using open source software or buy something off the shelf. Um, and for us, yeah, we, we were guided by questions around you know, how many monthly users we wanted to reach, how many modules we wanted to develop, um, how we wanted the e-learning to integrate with our existing platform that had already been developed, uh, and, and also how important it was for us as a team to uh, have the internal capacity to develop uh, the e-learning without having to rely too heavily on external providers. 
And as was mentioned, there are so many options and so it can be quite an overwhelming um, process and there's lots of different pricing models, uh, but there are so many free trials available. And so we rolled up our sleeves and, and got our hands dirty and tried as many um, options as we could. And yeah, I'd strongly recommend for other organizations who, who are looking to uh, to find an option that would work for them to do the same thing. It's, it's really the best way to figure out what's available um, and, and out of those things, what, what would best meet your needs and your budget. And, and before I, I move on to my, to my co-host with the next question, how, how long did this take you to do that, to, to do some of the trial and error, to free trial some of the, or rather to test some of the other options? Regan, you mentioned earlier that uh, COVID forced you guys to pivot, and I want how how long did 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 it take for you to make that decision uh, based on all the different options? So we would have started the process last year in about June, and by August we had made our decision and were starting with the initial build. So it was very rapid, and because the pressure was on, we had people referred to us by the courts who had to complete their programs. But obviously we were in lockdown, so we can't meet with people. So we had to come up with a very rapid build solution so that people would not end up being non-compliant with the courts. And we were able to render the services they needed online. So we were under a lot of pressure. So we worked very intensely. It was a number of people involved in that process. And um, had it been in a different situation, we might have taken longer to go through um, more options. But we're very happy with the one that we ended up going for. But um, yeah, it took about two to three months to start and complete that process. And Simone? I think for us, <laughs> the time requirement to find the right solution and to build something that works is a huge challenge. It's very time consuming and something... Um, we definitely underestimated initially was the amount of user testing and uh, iterations that would be required. I think for us, a challenge has been that we, we target young unemployed people who have a matric or less. And so, as Regan mentioned earlier, the digital literacy levels and internet access, it's, it's a huge challenge in that audience. Um, and although our content and the e-learning was designed to be data light with plans to be zero rated at some point in the future. We know that data also isn't the only barrier to internet access. So a lot of our users also have challenges with network issues. Um, they may not have their own devices or they may not have devices that have sufficient capability that's conducive to, to a quality e-learning experience. And so we, in fact, recently completed some research looking at how our users experience the e-learning component of our platform and found that for a lot of young people, they arrive at our platform with this very urgent need to find paid job opportunities. And so mm. them coming to the platform with this urgent need for, for paid work sits at odds with the time investment that's required to complete an e-learning process and so for us the challenge has been how do we involve our users throughout the design and testing process to make sure that we're delivering something that they'll actually use and engage with um, considering they, they're coming many are coming to the platform uh, seeking out job opportunities that they want to access immediately Perhaps I can come in there, mm. Simone, and just um, as we're talking about how users are engaging with uh, your different platforms, 
Um, how have you driven engagement on the platforms? You, you mentioned that there's a there's a challenge in in managing that urgency. Um, but how do you how do you navigate that that urgency um, as well as the continued engagement with the, the systems that are in place to ensure that there is this consistent engagement? What we believe has helped to drive the engagement was the design process, um, which for us has taken almost a year now. Um, so we heavily involved users throughout the design and testing phases um, and I think we've received through that process have just received so much valuable feedback and insight on user behavior, on um, small tweaks and changes that we would have, you know, overlooked in the initial design that help to engage um, and capture the attention of our audiences. I think we all have so many inherent biases, and so designing with users is definitely one way to keep some of those in check and make sure you're building something that speaks to your users' preferences um, and and not and not to your own. Um, we, we've also seen and, and discovered through through working with with users over the past year that for our audience, exclusively digital content um, doesn't have the same levels of engagement and, and quality outcomes as a kind of blended learning approach. Obviously, with COVID, this imposed a challenge, um, but we did have to think creatively around how can we um, cre- create some kind of blended learning model where some of the learning was was self-directed online and other components were done with a facilitator, albeit still online through through some kind of digital platform. And so we found that that approach has really helped to drive engagement where there is some um, where there's some more explicit and individual focus on the learner. Mm. Um, Combining that with having, you know, self-directed learning has been, yeah, one way we've found has, has impacted positively on engagement. Your, your inputs have, have brought something to mind for me. And uh, one of the future episodes, we would like to have a discussion around change management. But I think there's a lot of learning that we can, that we can get from you guys in this regard. And how have you brought the staff along with this journey? Have you found that the change management on that side has been easy? Um, uh, has there been training that you've had to consistently provide to your staff to as well, be comfortable with, with the new way of doing things as it were? So Nico's experience was quite different because most of our staff are social workers and they are not used to working online. So there was a large organization-wide change management process that was underdone at the same time that we were building the system. We did a lot of staff development and capacitation. I still run weekly demo sessions where people who want a refresher can just come and watch me demonstrate how to use the system. I also made videos that staff can watch in their own time. And we started small. We started with a few of the officers and as they became comfortable, we brought more and more officers on board. And now we are at the stage where all of the participating officers have their own staff member who is responsible for just overseeing how the office works on the LMS. I do the national level and just make sure everything's in place. But the officers are now at the stage where they can manage their own loading of clients, marking of assignments, downloading the court reports and um, removing clients who've 
completed. So it's been a, a process where we've been working in small stages. I didn't want to overwhelm the staff because everybody's overwhelmed at the moment. There's COVID, there's all of these things going on. So we had to bring this in in small stages, small manageable stages, while still making adequate progress to meet our obligations to the clients and the courts that we work with. So it was challenging, but I think we've been successful. Um, all of the staff that are using the LMS really do see the benefit of it. There was no resistance to using an LMS for online programming. The staff were very keen on that because it provided a solution to the problem of how do we work with these clients when we can't meet with them face to face. The only challenge was their own comfort levels in working with the system. They have to monitor their clients' progress online. They have to mark the client's assignments. They have to download their court reports and so forth. So it was getting the staff comfortable in working with those tools, which I think we've we've managed to do successfully. But it had to be planned and it was done in stages so as not to make the staff feel, I can't cope, there's just too much going on here. And thanks for raising that point, Lavoya. I think that certainly there it, it does highlight the importance of the human component because the technology in itself is not going to solve the problem. Um, and often when it comes to a system deployment, the problem can frequently exist between the keyboard and the chair. So it's really important to make sure that your your staff and your team are on the same page. And Regan, just in talking about that successful process on your side, if we're trying to support organizations that perhaps have less technical expertise um, than you guys have, um, both in terms of um, the, the human resources, but also the, the technical components, how would you summarize perhaps some of the successes that you've um, experienced? And then if you're happy to share some of the things that weren't so successful when you were implementing the system, um, perhaps we can start with you, Simone. Perhaps to start with the successes. <laughs> um, so I think we have recently just, uh, as, as I mentioned, we've recently completed um, a user testing and design phase um, over the last few months. And, and we found that was really successful because of the the valuable feedback we received that enabled us to to reshape what we had originally built, which which was really exciting to actually see see the product change as a result of the feedback we were, we were getting. I think what made it a successful testing phase um, is firstly we, we collaborated very closely with our nonprofit organizations. And I think this lent some credibility to the testing process. So young people were really engaging with it. Uh, they trusted, you know, who we were because we were um, associated with an organization that they knew and trusted. Uh, but similarly, the nonprofit organizations were able to provide us with really valuable feedback that gave us a bit more of a nuanced understanding of the feedback we were getting from young people. So the other thing that made the testing and design phase successful was that we didn't go in with a kind of refined, polished product. So we used a very kind of rough prototype for the testing. And so the young people, I think, felt far more comfortable providing critical feedback on something that was clearly a, a work in progress. Um, but also for us as an organization, the benefit was that we, we hadn't then invested a whole lot of money up front in something that would need to be changed. And so we were able to quite easily iterate and um, respond to the feedback that we were getting. In terms of 
yeah, some of the the challenges or, or, or failures that we've experienced. I think definitely initially it, it was not doing enough user testing. And I think for many organizations, there's a practical um, limitation there. There's, there's a cost and time implication with testing that for many organizations just isn't feasible. And so um, I think, you know, we, we understand that, but we've just seen the benefit of what um, really extensive user engagement yields over, over a kind of design process. Um, I think linked to that, we a mistake we made previously was was also not appreciating the diversity of our audience. I think in South Africa there, there is this perception that young unemployed people are a pretty homogenous group, and we're just learning more and more that that's that's simply not the case. Um, they have many different needs and motivations, and and approach e-learning very differently. So, for example, a young person who's just come out of matric um, and performed quite well in school may be more inclined to complete an e-learning process because they don't have that same urgent pressure to find a job and they've had a pretty positive experience with learning compared to someone who's perhaps been unemployed for a number of years and has had negative experiences with, with the education system. They, they're going to be a lot more difficult to try and um, engage. And so this this realization for us has resulted in us doing a far more thorough segmentation of our existing audience so that we can try and create e-learning that is res more responsive to, to the, the different needs uh, with, within our audience. Thanks, Simone. Um, and from your side, Regan, what would be some of the successes and challenges that, that you would highlight in the journey? So from the successes side, I think the fact that Nikro was able to make that transition within a relatively very short space of time and do so successfully is a major success because it was the first time they'd ever done anything online and the whole organization came on board and fully supported it. So I think that is a major success. It was um, such a, a happy day when we got our first client to successfully complete their program online. Everybody got very excited. And I think the other successes are that we, as Simone mentioned, do ongoing user testing. Before we make a program live, it goes through user testing by staff to check for language levels and comprehensibility and all of that kind of thing. And then each person who completes a program on the LMS evaluates not only the program, but the LMS experience itself. We did a three-month review and we made some changes to the way we do the programs. And we've got the six-month review coming up soon. One of the things that maybe were not so successful is we focused very much on the data issue and we wanted to make the system lightweight. So initially our first few programs did not have any audio, it was just text. And our reason for doing that was by adding audio to a video, you make the file size larger so you'll be consuming more data. But the feedback we got from the users at the three month review was that it really does need to have audio to make it more engaging. So all of our programs going forward are going to have audio and then we're going to have to go back and redo the earlier programs and add audio to that. The only other challenge I think was overestimating the average NICRO client's digital literacy skills. A lot of the social workers were like, no, my client can definitely manage the system, no problem. And then we found that many of them could not. So now the social workers are screening more carefully when they do their um, client intake 
to find out is this person actually going to be able to do their program online or are they just saying they'll do it because they don't want to come into the office. So we're being more selective now about the people we load onto the LMS than previously. And that I don't think is a bad thing, but um, we do need to look more broadly at digital literacy skills across the board so more people can access these online opportunities because having to come into the office places a time burden, it exposes people to potential risk and there's the cost involved in transport. So to make things equitable and accessible, we really do need to look at the broad levels of digital literacy in South Africa because there are these opportunities online and many people just can't access them because they, they don't, they're not comfortable using what is not a complicated system, but still they're just not comfortable working with things online. Thanks guys. And uh, just to the audience, I think you guys can get a sense of why we were just so excited to have both Simone and, and Regan join us because the learnings really are fantastic and it's just practical recent experience as well. As we move towards the end of the, of the discussion, I just maybe I'll start with Regan this time. Um, what, what would your advice be to organizations either looking to incorporate e-learning platforms in their offerings or those who have already perhaps started on that journey? I'll talk first to those that are thinking about it. Don't be intimidated by the process. As much as it may be something new and completely unfamiliar, do it in small steps. Work with, as Simone suggested, the trial versions of what's out there so that you can get used to these kinds of systems. And each system does things differently. Some are easier to use, others are more robust and complicated. There are also free platforms like Google Classroom that you could possibly use. So just get out there and start experimenting and put something up and test it and see how it works. I think a lot of organizations see the value in it, but just don't know how to start because they've never done it before. Just get out there, have a go at it and put something up and get feedback on it and take it from there to start the process. For the established organizations, constantly review, get feedback, tweak it, it's an ongoing process, revisit how you, you build your programs, the learning content. Remember that you can't take offline content like traditional program manuals and then just copy and paste that over into slides and make that online learning. You have to convert your content to much simpler language and very condensed key learning points. So our online version of an offline program actually looks very different from the offline program, the one that's typically done face-to-face. -face. There's a lot less text, but the key learning points are there. So you can't just copy and paste. You have to actually convert your content and make it simpler, more accessible, change the language. Remember, you're not going to have a facilitator guiding people through the process. So your colors, your images, your language needs to be as engaging and attention-holding as possible. Mm. Thanks for that. And, um, and over to you now, Simone. The first thing from my side would be to, to know your audience and their contexts and engage them um, as much as possible in the, in the process, as well as the curriculum developers that you're working with. Um, start really simple, as, as Regan mentioned, use prototypes as much as you can, use free tools where you can to test. Don't invest too much upfront. And I think importantly, don't assume that the best fanciest tech option is the best solution for your audience. Um, it sometimes might be quite a simple um, technological response that's required that, that doesn't look as fancy or exciting, but, but meets the needs of your users. Um, collaborate with organizations as much as possible. I think where there are other 
organizations who are already perhaps creating content that works really well on a similar topic to see where you can collaborate. It is an expensive exercise. Um, it is a time-consuming exercise. And so where where possible, I think collaborating with, with other partners is, is a really great way to try and streamline costs and, and efforts. Um, and I think look at the research. I mean, there's a lot of information and research available on how to use um, e-learning in, you know, for social impact. Uh, there, there are lots of examples of, of you know, where, where it's worked really well and equally from, from what hasn't. And I think as, as a bit of a plug for this uh, conversation, listen to these types of uh, podcasts. I think it's really great to um, hear from what people in the South African context are doing, what's worked for them and what hasn't, which is really, really helpful. Some really valuable insights there, really highlighting the importance of doing the groundwork well when it comes to e-learning and digital transformation. I really enjoyed that. In our next segment, we take some of your questions on tech, specifically on e-learning platforms, and we'll do our best to answer them. I think what's really been amazing about e-learning platforms is how, especially during the pandemic, how they've allowed organizations to move their content and learning materials online and specifically to actually scale up how many people they're able to reach. And I think that's been amazing to witness and sort of the pivoting and the learning that organizations are having to do during this period has been in leaps and bounds. However, in the work that I do, some of the gaps that I see is that for a lot of organizations, there might not necessarily actually be the resources to be able to deliver really high quality online learning platform experiences, whether it's for their students or for their beneficiaries who are participating in online programs. Because often when you're delivering or designing an online course, you actually end up taking more time and more resources to be able to deliver the same, if not a higher level of quality of learning for participants. And I think what I'm curious about is what mechanisms or resources or support systems are there for organizations to be able to build the internal capacity so that they can actually continue to scale up their learning management systems, but also to ensure that they're reaching more people, but at the same time, to ensure that what they're doing and what they're delivering is of a good enough and high quality standard? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the the pandemic has certainly accelerated the urgency of driving change within the way that programs are delivered and organizations operate. I think it's also what's primarily motivated us on this podcast is to provide some of those resources to help organizations navigate that digital tra transition or that migration into the use of, of e-learning and other technologies in delivering programs and in particular supporting youth transition. I think for me, one of the, the key learnings off of um, some research that I've done and, and also in working with lots of different organizations is the fact that most organizations have not been investing in their own teams. They haven't been providing training. They haven't been supporting that internal development. So I think first and foremost, the, the starting point is to start focusing on that investment in teams to build out those skills. In terms of the resourcing, as always, the internet is awash with, with resources. Um, simply going to Google is a great place to start. 
in looking at how do I structure my e-learning process? How do I build content? Sometimes when it comes to searching online, it's just about how you phrase the question into the likes of Google or search engines like Google. And I think just in some of the comments that we heard from our guests today, um, that willingness to try new things and being willing to fail forward, uh, I think there's a real reluctance to try something new. And uh, unless we're, we're willing to accept those failures, we're, we're not going to learn. Does the use of um, an e-learning platform require a lot of data? from the person who would be using it? Laboya, I think we can take this one together. I think the, the answer here is how long is a piece of string? <laughs> so I think there's, there's, it really depends on, on what content you're, you're going to post um, through your, your learner management system. Mm. Um, what has your experience been in this, Laboya? Pretty much the same. Um, it's dependent on the objectives you're trying to meet. I think as a principle, particularly in our context, one should always think about the data issue. Uh, and particularly, this is more on the curriculum or the nature of the content. So is it videos as opposed to text? Um, but as, as Jason said, how, how long is a piece of string? It, it is very much dependent on, on, on um, what you're trying to achieve. But importantly to say, there are options for data light platforms or, or content as well as potential to get your data zero rated as well. As we've said a few times now, we really want to keep this podcast practical. So please feel free to send us your questions via WhatsApp voice note to 076-397-2981. We'd love to hear from you. And remember, there are no stupid questions, only stupid answers. So, so what now? How do you move towards the next steps? In wrapping up this podcast, we wanted to share a few practical tips on how to get started. Now, at the risk of starting to sound like we're repeating ourselves, my first point is strategy, strategy, strategy. I kind of feel a bit like a real estate agent saying location, location, location. So if there's one thing you remember from this, it's strategy, strategy, strategy. I think it's easy to leave this step out and want to drive straight in. But if you do this, it really does create a lot of challenges down the line. Or rather, if you don't prioritize the planning beforehand. Jason, what have been some of the key points for you to consider when considering strategy? Yeah, I think you're 100% correct there, Lavoya. Planning really is a, a key component in starting out this journey. And I think the guests have given us um, a lot more to think about, especially in terms of the process that they followed and the willingness to to try something, to be willing to fail, to be able to iterate and to build the momentum around the process. And for me, I, I always come back to one of my mantras, which is think big, start small, start now. And then recently I've added to that, which is um, do it together. So really we want to think about the big picture Start small and start with something that's accessible and affordable. Start as soon as you can because technology waits for no one and certainly the need is not going away. And then finally, certainly this was reinforced in the session today, we have to do it together. So what are the resources we can share with, with other organizations? What can we learn from other organizations and how can we help to deliver more impact by collaborating? 
because there is a, an enormous need and the only way that we're going to start to address those needs is by working together. Like we said in episode one, it's not just about taking your existing content and putting it online. You really need to think about how you're creating and delivering your content. And we'll dig into that in future episodes, in particular when it comes to generating and developing your own content. You can find more helpful resources at techtalk.org.za and please be sure to check out our show notes of this episode to find out more about these and other resources that we're hoping to share with you. Abantu Basekaya, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us for episode two of the Talking Tech for Good podcast. Make sure you subscribe to this channel and share with anyone you feel could benefit. The more we talk about tech and really understand its benefits, the more we can go about harnessing the power of tech for a better world.